500 years ago, the Roman Catholic Church was fractured by a reform movement that rejected the authority of the Pope in Rome. This history-changing religious-political split is known historically, as many of us would know, as the Great Reformation in Europe. The Reformers recognized that at its foundation, the theology of the Roman Church was corrupted. They also recognized that at its top, the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church was morally degenerate. The papacy, the papacy, that office of the highest ranking priest in Roman Catholicism, had become notoriously arrogant, extravagant, and sensual. At the turn of the 16th century, Pope Julius II demolished the Basilica of St. Peter's, hiring Bramante to design a magnificent new structure, commissioning Michelangelo to paint frescoes in the Sistine Chapel, and employing Raphael to decorate the papal apartments. And those aren't turtles, I remind us. Those were no kidding around artists, the very best the earth could produce at that time in Europe all commissioned here for this new building. His successor, Julius II's successor, Pope Leo, famously crowed, God gave us the papacy, let us enjoy it, devoting his life to the pursuit of Renaissance opulence and bringing in all the money possible to build up this great basilica. His papal predecessor fathered numerous children out of wedlock, permitting one son to use the church's power to pursue a path of treachery, murder, and military intrigue. His predecessor, ironically named Innocent, fathered 16 children out of wedlock. That's not simply to throw a rock at some people in the past history. But to understand it historically, the sheer hypocrisy of it all was more than could be endured. It was simply more than could be sustained. The followers of Christ, supposedly, this one who stands in this position, living this way, administration after administration. Even illiterate European peasants knew that priests were supposed to be holy men. That was the calling of a priest, to be a holy man. They all knew this. And they all knew it wasn't happening. Priests were to be devoted to the will and the worship of God. And they were to be devoted to the service of His people. And while the very existence of a priesthood revealed Rome's corrupt theology, it was the moral hypocrisy of the priest that proved most disruptive. And of course, not to say there were no good priests. There were some in that day that we would seem clearly to know the Lord. But it was corrupt at the very top. And this had to change. And thus, the Reformation. Priests people knew, are not to use their office for selfish advantage and sensual pleasure. That's not what it's for. That's not how it's designed. Priests of God are to be holy men who offer pure sacrifices of worship to God 
for His glory. And that might be fairly self-evident to us. We say, that, that okay, what's the point? We, we understand this. This is clear. The fact that it's clear is highly significant. It indicates what we have learned through the life of Christ. What the Bible has revealed to us. What, even how it's influenced our culture in the lives of people who don't know what the Bible teaches. Priests are to be holy men devoted to God. We know this. It's significant that we do. Leviticus chapters 21 and 22 steer us to this conclusion. And many of us would never think of this section of Scripture steering us this way, but indeed it does. It leads us here inexorably. We'll return to this idea in the, in the future here, here at the close of the sermon but it steers us to this vital conclusion, a conclusion that is of utter importance to our lives and to our eternal future. We'll return to it in a bit, but we return first to the drama of Leviticus. We come back to this very ancient text as we get channeled in this way. As Leviticus, in the drama of it, channels us to God's redemptive plan. I... I a little bit of an apology to those who have come in today for the first time and you've not been with us through the series in Leviticus. We're getting to the end of it and a lot of it builds upon itself. So I apologize for that. And if you've never read the book of Leviticus, wow, are you in for a surprise? It's an ancient book. It's got a lot of weird things in it as they strike us. But we're learning as a church as we put this book together that it has such significance to us in that it steers us to the kinds of conclusions we just often assume. How do we know those conclusions are right? We go back in history and we see what God has been putting together through the ages. And as we look at the book of Leviticus, we remember how it's structured. Is that This itself is very significant. Noticing kind of this stair-step approach, or you could think of it as a pinnacle or a mountain. The pinnacle of the book is the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. And we've worked our way up to that through these uh, first, the first half of the book. In this first half of the book, there is a section of ritual then of priesthood is addressed, then of purity laws, and then this day of atonement when the tabernacle is cleansed as far as humanly possible of all sin. The tabernacle, the tent of meeting, where the people of God come to meet with Him, they must approach this tabernacle in holiness, in purity, so that they don't corrupt God. That's one side of the coin. The other is so that He does not destroy them. And God, through this ritual and through this priesthood and through these laws of purity that got into everyday life, I mean, little simple things that you did could render you unclean. Not because they were necessarily wrong or evil or sinful, but simply that God, using this drama to continue to illustrate to His people, we are innately sinful and separated from God. But God has a way that we can approach Him. And it starts with the rituals of sacrifice, of an animal dying. And so in this, this yellow arrow that you see, the whole point of this 
is the approach of God at the tabernacle. But as we said, what happens at the tabernacle is not to stay at the tabernacle. We might draw that conclusion, but the arrow begins then to move back down the mountain, so to speak, and you see the parallels here on the right side of the graphic. We're going backwards now, dealing with purity laws, which we completed last week. And we come then to this section here in chapters 21 and 22 today, dealing again with the priests. There's a very clear parallel to the earlier part of the book. The holiness is moving from the tabernacle, in a sense, and permeating all of life. As we come back to this priesthood, there's a massive distinction between us and this day. In fact, in our church, we would argue that the priesthood is ended that as far as it was as it was demonstrated here, this human priesthood offering sacrifices in an ongoing way, we would say that is ended because of the work of Christ. But nonetheless, this discussion on priesthood is so vital to our salvation as God creates in a sense these embankments that steer us and channel us to certain conclusions. So if we, if we take this book and understand it to be the Word of God to His people at that time, in that setting, we don't put it in our setting, but we put it in their setting, it reveals the character of God in that day, in a way that's appropriate for that time, and in a way that God is working with His people uniquely at that time. So working now to the priesthood once again in chapters 8 through 10 the ritual approach to god how they were to offer sacrifices how they were to bring those sacrifices but now in chapters 21 and 22 we learn that priests are to be holy people that they themselves in daily life are to seek purity much of its ritual purity again remembering the illustration or the drama of it but it's saying How are these men who approach God to prepare to do so? And who are they to be even in the home? Even as family men, we see this addressed here. Now again, if you pick up Leviticus and just walk into it all on your own and read these chapters, you're going to say it's got nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with us. Let's work that out. But first, we need to get into 21 and 22 and say, what's here? What do we find here? They're strange concepts, but remembering the drama that God lays out here for a purpose will bring it together at the end. Chapter 21, verse 1. As these chapters reveal a high standard of holiness for priests who mediate between God and man, bringing right sacrifices to the altar, we find, first of all, regulations for touching the dead and for marriage for priests and for the high priests. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. That is, he acts in a sense as, as her father. Now, what's going on here? Again, bridging many, many centuries of gap. The dead were not sent with the coroner, the medical examiner, and then the coroner onto the 
um, to the funeral home or anything of the like. Somebody died among your relatives. It was your job to care for the body. You would undress them. You would wash that body. And you would wrap that body and prepare it in various ways, traditional ways, for burial, which would happen very quickly in that time and without embalming. That was your task. As a family member, this was just understood, this is what you did. Touching a corpse, however, rendered a priest ceremonially unclean and unable to approach God at the tent of meeting. And so this is a really pretty dramatic way of indicating displaying the corruption of death and how the corruption of death in the human story will keep a priest from doing his job in bringing the people to God. Death doesn't come from God. He is the giver of life. It is a result of the curse. And so death in this ritual separates us from God and separates the priest. So the priest is not to touch a dead body unless it's some of these very near relatives. In verses 2 and 3, his wife is not mentioned, but she's assumed as one flesh with him. We mentioned the virgin sister. That is, she would be under his headship. And so he can prepare her body or touch her body. And that also would include, by the way, just being in the tent. Just entering into the tent where someone is dead. He's not going to go there unless it's one of these very near relatives, because it will render him unclean and unable to represent the people before God at the tabernacle. One week of uncleanness would result. So he is to be different than most people. Most people can enter into the tent of a dead person and they can touch a corpse if they need to and be unclean for a week. There's not a lot of significance to that. But for the priest, he's going to operate differently in this world. Verse 4, He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people and so profane himself. Much debate on to what, as to what that means but probably means he's not going to touch a corpse or enter the home of a deceased person who's related to him by his marriage to his wife. So there's going to be a distinction between how he deals with his wife's family. There again, he's to stand back a bit in a unique way. Now it could be that this husband here could be translated chief, but and that in his role as a leader, he is not to corrupt himself either just for these close relatives. That's all. They shall, verse 5, not make bald patches on their head or shave off the edges of their beards, as trim their beard, nor make any cuts on their body. Signs of deep mourning in that culture. They're not going to go there because they are, in a sense, distinctive from death. Not to be corrupted or made unclean by it in the ritual. Verse 6, they shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. The fact that they serve God in this unique way makes them different. They're distinctive. They're holy unto God. And it's clear that they serve God in a way that's different from the average family man. It affects their family. Marriage laws follow in verse 7. 
They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, this priest, for I, the Lord who sanctifies you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, that is by becoming a prostitute, living in sexual sin, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. I don't believe that means burned alive, but the understanding here is that all execution is through stoning, but her body will not receive honorable burial, but will be burned, which was a sign of great shame. And of course, everyone, everyone, many people jump in here. How could God say such a horrible thing? Well, it's, it's, it's kind of like somebody driving a car up against a cliff and you say, don't go over the edge or you're going down. I mean, he's just making it very clear. You're not going to do this. You're not going to profane my name this way. Your family is, in some sense, unique this way. You are unique this way. Who you marry is unique this way. Not any of it, I don't think, is directly applicable to us in this place, but it says something about the character of God as it's revealed in this time. And that's that His priests are to be holy people. They're to be people who are distinctive in their walk. And even some marriage possibilities are set aside so that they can serve God in this distinct way and be seen that way by the people of God. The reason? Because I am holy. It's not that God's designing rules here to make their life difficult, but He is holy and He wants them to be holy and He's teaching His people at this fairly elementary level what holiness looks like and how they're to stand out within the world. Verse 10 we now move to the chief priest. And we'll notice that the stipulations are a bit more stringent. Verse 10, the priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garment, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. That is, the one who's anointed, and he has this head covering. This is the chief priest, the high priest, in this case Aaron, and he is not to let his, the hair of his head hang loose nor tear his clothes. Again, normal signs of mourning. When someone dies, this family man is going to react a bit differently. And I, I want to instruct the people of God by his reaction about my holiness and about the place of death and sin in the camp. We don't know all the reasons for it, but God lays this out. Verse 11, he continues, He shall not go into any dead bodies nor make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. For the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. So not even preparing the body of his mother and his father is a more stringent separation rule than would apply to the priests. The relative dies. In fact, verse 12, it says here that he is to not to profane the sanctuary of God for the consecration of the is on him. That is, I'm sorry, I meant to read the first part of the verse. 
Verse 12, he shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. The idea here is that he is ministering at the tabernacle and he's not to leave, even for a funeral. We can put this together and think, well, this is really, this would be strange. But there's a sense here where God's worship and the ministry that this man has there takes priority even over family in this very unique crisis. It sends a message. The principle, again, is that his devotion to God as a servant of Israel's worship is above his devotion anywhere else. Now, God is merciful and he allows him to care for certain situations, but not for all the situations that would be found normal among others. So we have today, how do we apply it? What do we look at it? Uh, we have to be careful with this, don't we? We have a pastor today who's tomorrow leading a funeral for his family. Should he be here? He led in worship last week. He didn't lead in worship today. He's at a funeral. He's breaking this law. Of course not. He should be exactly there. And we said, Rich, go. You need to go and stay as long in South Carolina as you'd like, as long as it's not longer than 10 days or so. <laughs> this time of year, that might get a little comfortable. That's not how we apply it. It reminds me, though, of a, a moment in our history here in this church. Um, it's just an illustration, but it's got roots down deep. I've got to work on this. <laughs> um, I preached the day Beth's mom died. And that morning we heard that it didn't look like she'd make it through the day, and Beth drove up there and I wasn't there. And I thought, you know, if I was a teacher, I'd have taken a personal day off. In fact, I thought if I was pretty much anything that would allow you to go, I'd go. And I didn't preach the sermon that day. At first, we didn't know she'd make it through the day. She could have made it for another week. But also there was a sense in which because it was that day and because of what was happening, to feed God's word to God's people was priority. And she understood that and I understood that. And it was a sad thing to not be there. As her mom did die during the service. So there's different ways we see it and apply it. And Rich should be where he is today. And I think on that day, if I look back on it, I don't know what else we'd do. I'd have been different if it had been Thursday or Friday and there was time. But the point is, there is a calling upon the priest to minister for God. And it takes priority at places that are odd. Ways that are different from other families and the priest. The priest was possessed by God, devoted by God, dedicated to God. And when other people were mourning 
cutting themselves perhaps or trimming their beards around them in that culture. Or the average person was dressing and washing and caring tenderly for the body of mom or dad. He was at the tabernacle. He stayed there. It does not directly affect pastoral philosophy in our day. It shouldn't. This is priesthood. It's not pastoral ministry in the same direct way. But I wonder in light of this passage, the very common description, that family always comes first in the life of a pastor. Family always comes first. First, we're taught that we're taught, get taught that in Bible college and taught that in seminary. Family's always first. I think Christ is first, and when Christ is first, sometimes that means you put family aside to serve Christ, and sometimes that means you put a church aside to serve your family. It's not this simple equation of family first. What that can often do is feed idolatry. For this priest, his focus on the Word of God, on the work of God at the tabernacle was first. And there were adjustments that needed to be made. And God, again, working with him and permitting opportunities for him to care for his family in certain situations. But he lived a different life. Verse 13, how he married was a bit different too. He shall take a wife in her virginity. A widow or a divorced woman or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute, these he shall not marry, but he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. You might say, well, what's the problem here? It limits who he can marry. And in that day and in that culture, this would have been unusual and it would have limited him in some, perhaps at some times in some fairly less than ideal ways. Again, marriage in this day, not based on first romance and physical attraction, but based on arrangement by families, he had to marry differently than did everyone else. Everything in his life was a bit different because he was God's priest. He was a man holy and dedicated to God in some unique way. And this is mentioned, or this is pressed over and again. It also applied to his body. We come now to regulations for physical blemishes. Verse 16, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. They're in sacrifice eating there in the presence of the Lord. 4, verse 18, No one who has a blemish shall draw near. A man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, lots of debate on the Hebrew words there, but just clearly someone that has some deformity, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, probably broken and not set properly and so now deformed or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles, no man of the offspring of Aaron the priest, who has a blemish such as these, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. 
Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat. Let me stop there. He's not to come to the tabernacle and to minister there. The priest's body then had to display the wholeness of God's creative design. Don't take this as a personal thing. This isn't personal against those with deformities. God is not judging deformed men. Think of it in these terms. God did not give me a body capable of playing professional sports. I've spent a lot of my life a little bit irritated about that fact, but really, seriously, I don't get mad at God. I don't have a body that would work that way. It's not personal. It's just not the calling of God in my life. The same thing here with someone with some of these deformities. It's not personal. It's not against them. But that's not the kind of preparation that is appropriate to come into the presence of God in this setting at this time, this tabernacle. The laws respecting the deformed are a ritualistic drama. Deformity is the result of the curse of a fallen world. Symbolically, then, this was yet another layer of ritual that reminded God's people of the purity that is necessary to approach God, of the preparedness that is vital. In verse 22, however, it's not personal, he may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things. That is, his right as a priest to eat is to be honored. He's not set aside that way. You, you can't be here. You don't count anymore. You're not a priest. Not at all. It's not personal. It's just not the body that God gave him and the right situation. So he's, they are restricted from service, but not discriminated against when it comes to their care and their eating. What is assigned to them? Verse 23, but he shall not go through the veil won't pass into the tabernacle or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. There's the key to not profane my sanctuary. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. Next comes regulations for eating sacrifice food. Verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me so that they do not profane my name. I am the Lord. It's clear this is the emphasis. It's who God is in his character that they would not profane his name in any way in this ritual system. Now here in verse two, it says, speak to them. that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel. I thank God for the ESV Bible. It is a wonderful translation. It is very effective. This is a place in a rare case, and you know how rare it is. Uh, this is a place I think it stumbles. The word abstain, I would translate that Hebrew word respect or reverence. And if you do that, everything makes sense. If you don't do that, it's really hard to imagine what he's saying here. Now, that's not the reason to, re, to, to translate it differently, but I think there's good reason to take the Hebrew word that way in context. So read it that way. Speak to Aaron and his sons so that they reverence the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. 
Specifically, verse 3 illustrates how a priest can disdain or disrespect a sacrificial offering by eating it when he's ritually unclean. Say to them, if any one of you, verse 3, all of your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. That one will come under the providential discipline of the Lord, is the idea. Of his offspring there, verse 3, means the priests and their families. Verse 4, none of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he is clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has had an emission of semen and whoever touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. Simple ritual cleansing. That makes no sense to you. Go back earlier in the book and it makes some sense. In every area of life, even to bodily fluids and mice on the ground, There is ways of contracting uncleanness just through living your life. All of that connects there. But bathing with water, a simple ritual bath, brings one back to ritual cleanness. Verse 7 then, when is he restored? When the sun goes down, he shall be clean. And afterward he may eat of the holy things because they are his food. Adding to that, he shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. We go back there to food laws. Verse 9, they shall therefore keep my charge lest they bear sin for it and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Again, this theme. It's the Lord and who he is and his character. Verse 10, he adds... A lay person shall not eat of the holy thing. So what are we dealing with here? Not only the priests unclean eating what they shouldn't, but now we're talking about others in company with them. A lay person shall not eat of the holy thing. That is the sacrifice, the the meat or the bread of the presence. No foreign guest of the priest or hired worker shall eat of the holy thing. Verse 11 But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone who is born in his house may eat of his food. Interesting, the slave is treated as a family member with this high, distinct privilege of participating in the meal. Fill in blanks. Very interesting. Verse 12, if a priest's daughter marries a layman, She shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. Why? She's under that uh, headship, no longer under her father's who is a priest. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced or has no child and returns to her father's house, the social security system of the day, as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food, yet no layperson shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, that could happen. Somebody might eat it accidentally, He shall add the fifth to its value, give the holy thing to the priest. There's a way to work through that. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord, and so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Now, at verse 17, 
we move to regulations concerning sacrificial animals. Hang in there a little bit further. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering, for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, it is to be accepted for you. It shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. As the body of the male priests had to be whole, in like manner the bodies of male sacrificial animals had to be whole. Okay? Keep that in view. Verse 20, You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable to you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scab, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long or too short for a free will offering, but for a vow offering it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your land." could mean, don't do that ever, but it does certainly mean you don't offer it in sacrifice to the Lord. I'll just say, we go back in time. We take a little time travel here, and as we're going back through, we get all dressed up right to be an Israelite, and we're walking in the camp. And we find ourselves in the tenting area surrounding the tabernacle of the tribe of Asher. And so we got a little bit of a hike to make our way to the tabernacle through all the other tents and through the people that are are surrounding the tabernacle. And we have this lamb in our hands and we're going to take it for sacrifice to the tabernacle, but it, it, it doesn't walk very well because it's got a broken leg. And that broken leg is not set and has not wanted, so it's, it's, it just has that leg up in the air and it's walking on three legs and it has a scab all over the... So we pick it up and carry our lamb for sacrifice to the tabernacle. We've got our eyes kind of set on the tabernacle and we're making our way there. And some people are milling around or working out of their tent or cooking or something and they go, where are you going? So I'm going to the tabernacle to offer my sacrifice. Say, you're not offering that lamb there. That lamb's got a broken leg. That's not a that's not an unblemished lamb. It's it's deformed. You you, you can't. You're not going to. I'll be all right. I, I was, this is the lamb I have, and I'm going to take it. And you make your way up to the tabernacle to take this lamb to the priest and say, "Here, I want you to offer this on the altar." What's he going to say? I'm sorry, I cannot accept that sacrifice. This sacrifice is marred. It's deformed. You can't offer this lamb. Everyone in Israel knew this. It was so clear. You cannot take a deformed animal and offer it to the Lord. It's a sign of the curse. It's not perfect. And it cannot be offered. And through the centuries, Israelites continued to learn this. 
It had to be a male offering and it had to be without blemish. Perfect sacrifice. Verse 26. Uh, verse 25, neither shall you offer the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner, since there is a blemish in them because of their mutilation, they will not be acceptable for you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, then when an ox or sheep or goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. Just some further regulations about the sacrificial animals. Verse 28, but you shall not kill an ox or sheep and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice the sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. Probably some sense of compassion here, not killing an animal and its mother, uh, not taking them the same day, not taking the newborn from the mother with that intense natural craving to care for that newborn animal. But this is how you will operate. You're to eat on the same day. That is, it's holy. It's consecrated. It's not to be treated like other food. Verse 31, closing up the section, you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. This is the key. You shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you and who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And because I am holy, you will be holy and my priests will be holy people. And my people will offer holy sacrifices. This is drilled into Israel's DNA. To their very psyche, their spirit all the time. And it channels us, steers us where God wants to take us. He is the Lord. And as we see there in verse 32, they, they have been delivered from Egypt. Their redemption is at the heart of all that he is saying to them. So once again, we witness in this book of Leviticus these embankments that channel us toward vital conclusions in our walk with God. Are these chapters that we've read today obsolete? Are these just a museum piece? We kind of look at and consider, and wow, that's nice, that's interesting, that must have been a strange world for them, or how did this work? Not at all. This is set here to impress upon us the importance of a holy priest devoted in all of life to the worship of God. That's how priests live under God's design, because He is holy. And He intends to impress upon us the concept of a perfect sacrifice offered to God in the place of sinners. He dramatizes these concepts that we might understand the nature of His redemptive plan How it works. It's not obsolete. What God does here in Leviticus 21 and 22 and this book is drive a permanent stake in the past, in redemptive history, that we might continue to come back here and say, we're on the right path. We're in the right channel. We're going the right direction. Perfect sacrifice. Holy priest. We know where God is tracking 
And this is the glory of our day and of our time on this side of the cross. But the New Testament brings out this connection over and again. And I I would just encourage us again. I know this is heavy plowing. It's not as intuitive as much of what we might usually consider in, in a preaching series. But it's that stake that gives us the sense that we're on the right track. And it's the background we absolutely need to really believe what the New Testament develops. Think about what you're lacking when you don't have the book of Leviticus for a passage such as this. That's one point. But the larger point is Jesus Christ coming as the ultimate priest. For every priest, Hebrews 5 says, chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. This one is devoted to God to do what God has called him to do. And no one takes this honor for himself. The guy from, the, my, from Asher, I'm coming up with my sacrifice that's flawed. That's one problem. If I came in and said, well, you won't offer it, I'll offer it. Let's say, no, you won't. You're not from the tribe of Levi. You have to be commissioned by God. You're not if you're not part of the tribe of Levi. No one takes this honor to himself, but only those called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, so that we can sing that song this morning that he is prophet, priest, and king. He is the source of eternal salvation to all who believe. Hebrews 7, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Here's the separation of the priest playing out now in the life of Christ in an ultimate way. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He has been chosen by God for this unique position as the ultimate high priest and has been made, has been perfected forever. Hebrews 9, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, this new covenant relationship, this new era in Him. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You can't read that without Leviticus. What do the blood of bulls and goats and this holy place have anything to do with Jesus It's got everything to do with Jesus. The tabernacle was illustrating the heavenly abode of God and how to enter into it. Christ, with His death, enters into that abode for us as the ultimate high priest. And this priest is perfect. He is distinct and holy and separated and godly. He is divine. And He secures for us then an eternal redemption. God making clear who this Savior is. Prophet, priest, and king. Hebrews 10 continues, For since the law 
has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. That tent, that's just a shadow of the ultimate reality of heaven. These goats and lambs, just a shadow of the ultimate reality of the perfect sacrifice, Christ. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It's not going to save, ultimately, Saves on credit, in a sense, but not ultimately. Verse 4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. I'd like to suggest that on the basis of this passage today, you just read that differently. You gave Me a body. An unblemished body in sacrifice to God. I have come, he adds, to do your will. And by that will, we who believe have been sanctified, have been purified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the fuel that ignites this fire is this history that we've read today. To see that Christ is this sacrifice, that He is rather this priest, and that we can respond to Him and trust He's the final and perfect high priest. He is, secondly, the final and perfect sacrifice. A body was given to Him which He laid down as the Lamb of God. And now in Christ, the the priestly concept continues. For now we are also a priesthood in Christ in a unique sense. As Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy family, a people of His own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We are that priesthood and our sacrifices are our praises bringing glory to God in this world. God preparing us to see this in this ancient drama now saying to us, you are that royal priesthood. As a kingdom of priests, let's take from Leviticus 21. As a kingdom of priests displaying devotion to God, we mourn differently. As we face death, our shaky feet stand on the unshakable bedrock of Christ's conquest over death. We're a kingdom of priests here announcing in a world of death, we grieve, but not without hope. We have a confidence in our resurrected priest. You are that kingdom of priests in this world. This church has been that kingdom of priests in this world. Two people from another culture in which death was seen as the ultimate end of everything and absolute no hope ever had seen in a funeral came to a funeral in this church and said, we are stunned. We have never seen anything like this. There is sorrow, but there's something here that's hopeful. 
and joyful. This church has displayed that as a kingdom of priests. We believe in the resurrected Christ. He's conquered death. As a kingdom of priests, we marry differently. Not according to the laws here specifically and directly, but we don't go at marriage the way everyone else does. We marry in the Lord. We do not seek to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we say that the call of Christ and His holy call upon my life means that I will marry differently. I will think about marriage under His Lordship. As a kingdom of priests, our mouths are no longer filled with cursing, but they are now filled with sacrifices of praise to the Lord. As a kingdom of priests, we love strangers and outcasts and sojourners, and we draw them into the feast that is Christ. We encourage them to join with us. We reach out to all beggars, for we were spiritual beggars as well, and now we feast on Christ, and we say, come with us. That's a kingdom of priests in action. There are indeed those in that kingdom of priests. Just as Israel was a nation of priests, Exodus 19, there were priests within that nation, so we as the people of God are a kingdom of priests. And there is shepherding leadership within those churches. There are parallels here, not direct application, but there's parallels here. And let us put that stake here as well then. As a kingdom of priests, we announce and believe that those who lead churches are to be faithful, godly people. They're to be holy men of God. We are to be holy people as we lead the assembly. So the church is not here to gain sensual advantage. It doesn't exist in order to become wealthy. It's not here in order to glorify self. It's a ministry given by Christ to build up His people in faithfulness and holiness. And the leaders, the shepherds of this church and the shepherds of every faithful church in this land and throughout this world need your prayers. We need your prayers to be faithful and godly people because that's Christ calling upon His church. It's not a power position. It's a servant position to be displayed in faithfulness and holiness of life. We must pray for one another. And ultimately, this is where we are as a kingdom of priests. The unblemished sacrifice. What does it accomplish? Ephesians 5, Christ dying and giving life to His church that, we, that He might sanctify her, that He might make her holy, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. The cleansing with water. You can't understand that without Leviticus. Well, there's other books too, but that's there. You see it. The cleansing with water. The washing of water with the Word. We are purified. We are cleansed through the Word of God so that, here it is, He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Not here as a sacrifice, for that is Christ in His perfection, but here on that same theme of unblemished, we are a kingdom of priests being presented before Christ without sin. 
That's not realized in this life. But this is the sanctification process that he's taking us through as a kingdom of priests. To wash and to purify and to sanctify that we one day may stand without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Sanctified and holy before the Lord. This is the redemptive plan of God. As we put it all together throughout the entire Bible. If Jesus crucified and risen came out of nowhere, we'd be standing on pretty shaky ground. If it just plopped down here as this new religion with this new concept, let's put this out before people and see what they think about it, it'd it'd be really, really hard to believe. It is so amazing. You still might. But here is where God gives a solid foundation in a book such as Leviticus and says, this didn't come out of nowhere. I've been working this plan little by little, piece by piece, through the redemptive ages. And Jesus is our great high priest. He is our perfect sacrifice. And through his work, we are a kingdom of priests headed toward ultimately the position of being the bride of Christ. You say, I'm not there. Then you're with the rest of us. We're not. But are you heading there? Are you making your way there? Are you seeing in that question a call for you to make yourself a little better, to clean up some things in your life? Don't think that way. Think only in these terms. Christ is your sacrifice, paying the penalty of sin, who can give you life in His name. He can wash us clean of sin. But only He can do that. Because only He is the great high priest and the perfect sacrifice for sin. Trust Him. Turn from your sin and your self-righteousness and put your hope in Christ crucified and risen. That's our salvation. That's our high priest. Lord, And we thank you that Christ is our final sacrifice. We praise you for the redemption in his name. It's a labor for us to go through this book. These are hard chapters to plow through in many ways. But Lord, thank you for reminding us of how beautifully integrated the Bible is. How your redemptive plan is so precise, so flawless so evident. Draw to Christ each one of us here today, wherever we are, and move us on this road to sanctification, we pray in His name. Amen.